Good evening, and welcome to this week's broadcast of Life's Tough, You Can Be Tougher. We had our premiere broadcast about a month ago, and since then, we've been off and running. I'm Dustin Plantle, your host. This is a show about life and purpose. It's about the stories we all have. Everyone, when you think about it, has a story. Well, some stories may sound more riveting than others. That's to be expected. Not every story, after all, is the basis for a blockbuster movie. Yet when you think about your own story, the most important thing to consider is what you will do with it. Or, to put it another way, what will your legacy be? We're looking forward to another terrific show with this week's special call-in guest, Nicholas Sansbury-Smith, a USA Today best-selling author of post-apocalyptic science fiction, my favorite genre. And back with us in the studio is my friend, Oren Stewart, host of The O-Factor. Hello, Oren. Hey, Dustin. How are you? Good. Good to see you again, Oren. Always a pleasure. We're broadcasting, of course, from the Alston Carlisle studio in Baltimore, Maryland. Our other special guest here in studio is Christina Knapp from Charm City Players. Hi, Hello, Christina. Dustin. Hi. How are you? Hey. All right. Before we begin, I also want to welcome a returning sponsor, the POI Institute. POI is a private holistic detox center located in gorgeous Cabo San Lucas on the Baja California Peninsula. Get a safe, effective start on reclaiming your life at POI. Call the POI Institute at 833-POI-CABO. That's 833-POI-CABO. And tell them Life's Tough sent you. Nicholas Sansbury-Smith, a New York Times and USA Today best-selling author of post-apocalyptic science fiction with more than a million books sold. Nick's books have come out as parts of ongoing individual series, including Helldivers, Extinction Cycle, Trackers, and Orbs. He self-published his first book in 2013 through Amazon, when writing was just a hobby. Since then, he has had two major book deals with top five publishers, Simon & Schuster and Orbit Books, and a third with Blackstone Publishing. His fifth Helldivers book, Captives, is out this month. He's probably best known for his Extinction Cycle series, a saga that has expanded into eight books in the main storyline and multiple spin-off stories from a dozen-plus authors in the former Kindle World program. Prior to launching his writing career, Nick worked in disaster planning and mitigation for the Iowa Homeland Security and Emergency Management Office. He assisted communities with their plans for responding to natural and man-made catastrophes. This particular field of work later inspired him to begin writing fictional narratives tied to apocalyptic events. He and his wife reside in his native town of Des Moines, Iowa, with their dogs. And with that, we'd like to welcome Nick to the show. How are you, Nick? Great. Thanks for having me. This is uh, something I've been looking forward to all week. Well, same here, Nick. And and you and I, you know, the the odd thing for those listening in, uh, and I know I sound like I'm a 90-year-old man, uh, but Nick and I are both the same age. And so one of the challenges we're coming up with, what are we going to ask Nick today? And for me, the biggest struggle is he's accomplished more than me. He has written many more books. He always found time 
And so with that, the question I want to ask him is, Nick, many others in their life have not put the time into what you have. How did you find time? Well, I've really made time. Uh, there's, you know, there's been so many, um, I think, situations where I've kind of passed up doing certain things that I, I would have rather have done than, you know, sitting at my desk and writing. Uh, but I've really pursued this career and treated it like a business. And I think with any entrepreneur, you have to make sacrifices. And I kind of learned how to do that a long time ago before I started writing um, just with my former career. And, you know, I was working full time um, for the state of Iowa when I first got out of college and then taking night classes and weekend classes for grad school wow. and also working at a sushi bar as a, <laughs> as a bartender. You're so basically, me. I love sushi. Uh, where where, where yeah, was it? Too. Did you serve me? <laughs> Probably not. Des Moines. Uh, so I kind of just always had this drive and hustle, I guess, is just ingrained in me. And uh, once I started writing, it, it just got it, the fire was even was ignited way more than anything else I've done before. Uh, part of that is because I'm passionate about what I do uh, and I love what I do. So that that frankly helps uh, the amount of the amount of hours I put in, because normally I don't think of this as as a job. I don't think mm. of it as work. Um, but in the past, you know, my other jobs, I did. And it was a struggle sometimes to put in so many hours to try to, you know, make a living, get get my education. And um, so I feel really blessed where I'm at now. And, and part of it is, I think, through hard work, but um, just commitment to get becoming a better writer and putting out uh, each book that I put out, trying to make sure that the quality is better than the last and, you know, engaging my readers. And so and that's kind of a long answer to your question. Well, but it's, a, it's a very honest question. So let, let me ask you that. It kind of leads into the next question of uh, what's your schedule look like? Uh, that's that's a good question. And one I get quite often because, you know, if you're in Des Moines, Iowa, there aren't a whole lot of uh, creative types that's at least that gets a sort of recognition for it. Um, you, you tend to think that a lot of writers or people that are working in movies or whatnot are living on the West Coast or the East Coast. Right. And so there's. it seems like whenever I do an event here, people are just absolutely fascinated with – you know, not only how did I create a career out of this, but how what my day looks like on an on a daily basis. And and essentially, like I have it pretty structured um, to working in the mornings on uh, basically getting things out of the way, like emails and whatnot. And then, you know, accounting, because there's all sorts of accounting work that goes on now that I have a publishing company paying other authors, hmm. um, things like that. And then I start. Uh, I move into editing my work because I find that my writing time is normally in that in the afternoon and the evening. So I'll edit and then I'll take a break, typically exercise um, every day. And then um, in the afternoons, I'll start I'll sit down and start writing my word count for the day, uh, which is typically 2000 words. 2000 words. Wow. That's pretty much the average that I've that I usually hit. Um, some days I do a lot better than that, but normally I don't give up until I've hit 2000 unless I'm having a really bad day. Hmm. So that's, uh, that's great insight. And then, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, uh, it's just really a typical day for me is, is that structure. And then on the weekends, I, I try to get caught up with things that I've missed out on on the weekend or on the weekdays. Um, 
you know, I take a look at my Amazon ads or other ads I have running to make sure that they're running properly and I'm not burning money and just, and I get caught up on um, some other projects because I usually have two books going at a time. So that's really what my week looks like and, and my day. Nick, how are you? This is Oren. Hey, Oren, how's it going? I'm doing awesome, man. Question for you, and clearly it shows that you are extremely passionate about um, writing. I want to ask you a question. Have you always had a passion for writing, and as well as becoming a published author? Yeah, and I'm going to add into it, did it come easy? Yeah. You remember that age, I, how old you were? Yeah, I always, uh, you know, I have a, a twin brother, and he's pretty creative, too. He likes, he was always drawing pictures, and um, later when we got older, he was doing different types, experimenting with different types of painting, and I was always the writer, um, and I knew from, you know, an early age, even when I was in, in high school, I thought that it'd be wonderful to turn that into a career, but then as, you know, I went to college, I, I realized, I took some university uh, some courses at, um, the University of Iowa is, is the Writers Workshop program, one of the one of the most famous ones in the world. And I took a couple classes there, and I think that's when I realized how difficult it was going to be to become a published author. And I kind of shelved that dream for almost a decade. Actually, probably it was a decade. Wow. Uh, and then it huh. it it wasn't until I I realized that I actually met a guy here in Des Moines who had had some success self-publishing and I looked into it. I had written a book already and I decided to go ahead and, and self-publish that via Amazon. And I'll tell you, it wasn't easy at all. That first book tanked and I, you know, I was pretty frustrated. I knew it wasn't, wasn't the best book. I, I didn't have any illusions about that, but um, I was, not sure why it wasn't selling compared to some other books in my genre. So I really took the time to research how to market on Amazon before I put my next book out. And that when, when that book came out, it's called orbs, that book went viral. And essentially it was because of the, the marketing experience that and knowledge that I gained from listening to podcasts, um, you know, just social media posts from other authors that had had success self-publishing and since then you know that was six years ago almost and i've really treated this uh writing as a business essentially wow. and so um now i'm one of the let's say top marketing consultants for my genre uh, i do a lot of one-on-one -on -one coaching with some well of the done. top that's amazing yeah well done yeah, it's 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 fun i mean i i I actually really like the marketing aspect, so I think that helps too. Um, and I love writing, so the combination I think has led to my success, um, and it's also helped me kind of uh, transition with the changes that you've probably seen in publishing. You know, you have a lot of different things going on right now with traditional publishers. Um, indie publishers, and then authors like me, I'm a hybrid author. So I do self-publishing, but I also have traditional uh, publishers as well. And I can talk about that certainly if you guys want to. Uh, you know, the, the biggest change that I've seen in publishing is just the uh, dominance of eBooks and now audio too. Audio has become huge. And uh, I think royalty-wise, I'm probably making just as much in audio now than anything else. So that kind of shows how how that that's just been a recent change in the past couple of years. 
Hi, Nick. This is Christina. Oh, hi. Hi. How How's are you? Good. Good. Um, I just had a question for you. Do you have any favorite authors or a mentor who's inspired you to write? Yeah. So I'm in my office right now, so I have a pretty good view of all the books on my shelves. And I, I collect a lot of my favorites. Um, you know, I, I do... Uh, read a lot of post-apocalyptic fiction that's the genre I write in and it's what I love to read too so some of my favorite authors like indie wise um DJ Mole he wrote the remaining series I was actually just talking to him today um but he was a big inspiration for me when I first started he had self-published on Amazon and had just massive success um and he ended up signing with David Fugate, who is now my agent as well. He's with wow, Launch wow. Books. And so David um, ended up getting DJ a, a pretty massive deal with Orbit Publishing for his remaining series. And then three years later, Orbit came in and bought my Extinction Cycle series. Wow. That's so amazing. That's great. Yeah, it was pretty. Yeah, activity pretty creates great. activity. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's pretty crazy how it was all connected. Um, and now DJ and I are pretty good friends. Um, and it's yeah, I love his books. Um, he writes mostly post-apocalyptic fiction, but he's also done some thrillers too. Um, his his remaining series is probably the most popular. It, his when book six came out, it hit the New York Times bestseller list in paperback, which mm. is. Pretty pretty amazing considering the series had already been out for a while. Yeah, what an honor. Yeah, so I would say him. Um, in in terms of indie authors, I also um, I read a lot of. I try to find stuff that isn't you know like on the bestseller list, but is like a hidden gem. And one of those, probably one of my favorite books, is this book called Three They're by Jay Pope. Three, three by Joe J. Posey. Yeah, and I highly recommend that one to anyone that likes post-apocalyptic fiction. It's very unique, and um, I mean, it has definitely hit the bestseller list at times, but it's one of those more, uh, yeah, like I said, hidden gems. I those, guess. In oh, that's my cool. Opinion, I, my yeah, opinion. and I'm going to get a copy of your top ten or top yes. twenty-five. Might be top hundred. We're going to make sure we put it on. Those page. hidden gems are the best. Yeah, I want to make sure we get the word out. <laughs> Okay, awesome, and and I can keep going through, but like one second after by William. Fortson. That's fantastic! What a yeah. great series. Yeah, it yeah. is, and he's he's kind of he inspired me to write my tracker series because that's based off an EMP uh, apocalypse as well. Yeah, um, that's really the only thriller that I've written that doesn't have science fiction elements in it, um, and part of that inspiration was also my former job at Iowa Homeland Security. And I can talk about that later, but back to books. Um, they say, oh, here's another really good series by Jason Pugh or how I can't, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but he wrote uh, the Darwin elevator, which was a New York times bestseller. And that is a fantastic post-apocalyptic series. Uh, yeah. And it's now been uh, expanded into five books. So that the, it came out as a trilogy was very popular and, and, now there's five in that. Um, but I'd have to say my all-time favorite author right now isn't – he doesn't write post-apocalyptic fiction. It's Don Winslow. He writes thrillers, and um, his newest is called The Cartel. It's the third book in um, the, his – actually, it's not. Sorry. It's The Border. The second book was called The Cartel. The Border just came out, and it ends his – basically 20 year project on writing about it's 
it's fiction, but it's based on the drug war and the situation going on at the border. And it's just fantastic. It, it, it's, it's, it, it's done well. So that, yeah. that kind of really, as the, the post-apocalyptic world, I always find that always has these, I call these ethical dilemmas. So where do you think that comes from? Or do you think that that is world life? Whereas the EMP goes off and, and now you have to make a decision that is help myself or help others. So how do you see the genre when it comes to the dilemma part? Well, you know, I try to treat my characters like I would envision people acting in real life. And I think there's a spectrum. So, you know, a lot of people are going to just totally freak out in an apocalyptic event, have no idea what to do. Um, even I would say the prepper type, a lot of those people might know what to do, but when it comes down to it, you don't know how you're going to react. And, um, so I try to create, you know, characters that are going to have or multiple characters that react in different ways. Um, and I think a little bit of my own personality comes out in some of that too. Uh, because I always wonder, I always ask myself that same question. Like what happens if I'm working at a coffee shop and someone comes in and fires an AR-15 or if I'm driving home and the air raid sirens go off and it's not because it's a tornado warning, like what would I do in those situations, for example? And I think that's really the fascinating thing about post-apocalyptic fiction is people that have this question now, not only how they would react, but what would happen? And, right. you know, our, it's fascinating. Our way like, well, you always think of how do you know you would react unless you're in the situation? Like, well, maybe you would do something different. Yeah. And also there's this weird kind of morbid fascination with post-apocalyptic fiction, I think because our way of life would be completely eradicated. So you wouldn't have um, any of the luxuries we have when, I mean, even down to little things like taking a warm shower or sleeping right. in a clean bed or, you know, having a cell phone and checking your text messages, whatever. Or it keeping might be. your insulin at the right room temperature. Absolutely. I mean, things yep. like that, that, you know, we look at, uh, I, I, yeah, right. most of the, most of the places that people, that people are at to keep themselves alive, all of a sudden the lights turn off, the electricity goes out and, and the backups, well, they fail eventually. Um, the world will be a much different place. So that leads into, uh, Chrissy has another question for you. So I produce plays and musicals based off of other authors' works. So how do you go about creating the worlds that become the backdrops for your stories and novels? Um, that's a really good question. Uh, I typically have an idea in my mind that um, sometimes it ends up coming becoming a book, but oftentimes I just write them down and kind of experiment with what they might look like as a story. Uh, but I also kind of do a little bit of writing to market because since I, this is a career and it is a business, trying to make sure whatever story I'm putting out is something that readers will pick up. And um, my Helldiver series, for example, is probably the most, in my opinion, diverse and unique world that I've created. Um, and I wasn't sure it was going to work just because it was so isolated to the sky. Basically, in Helldivers, humanity resides on two two airships um, after a post-apocalyptic event. It's 250 years in the future after this 
post-apocalyptic event. So there, there were multiple airships in the beginning housing um, the final bastions of humanity, and they all, almost all of them came crashing back down to the Earth over time. And Earth is poisoned, so that's why they can't set down. There's electrical storms um, blocking out the sun pretty much everywhere. Well, all things planet. that uh, we would both agree that are potentially possible if all of the right elements come together. Right. I, I mean, that. W- this is probably the most terrifying future that I can envision, and it became a series. But it really started off with just an idea, and that that idea was, wasn't even in the sky at first. It was um, exploring um, survivors living in bunkers. But at that time, um, there were so many books already about that concept. Yeah, was that, uh, was that Wool, if I remember correctly? Yep, I'm looking right at it. Yeah. <laughs> this instant. And there's, there's a, you know, a ton of books actually that kind of, um, spun off in that direction. So I thought, why not try something different? I knew there had been books about airships, but I decided to create, um, these bunkers basically in the sky and the hell divers are men and women that come from all walks of life. Some of them are former engineers or militia sh- soldiers or, um, in, uh, mechanics. There's some thieves that were conscripted into duty, and basically their do- their job is to jump through these apocalyptic storms to the surface and scavenge for parts to keep the airships in the sky, and along the way look for you know other things that they need. Um, and the airships have their own economies and their own you know they produce they have their own they have a farm they have a water treatment plants, all things that you would need to survive. So I really just kept expanding on this idea and trying to visualize like what it would actually look like and um, how it would work. So it was, I'm just giving that as, as one example. Uh, that's a great backdrop. Uh, Nick, I'll tell you, this is Orin again. I, that, that's a great backdrop. I'll tell you, man, I, you almost had me closing my eyes and envisioning the, the story we, as, we you're, as you're saying. We were, right there with, back. we were right there with you, man. Question for you. Awesome. And, and actually, this is a great segue. Um, what draws your readers in? You know, it sounds like you write from a reader standpoint, actually, even more than just yeah, the how writer. How do we think, you know, by the way? Am I that messed up that <laughs> I want to read about the end of the world? Exactly, right? Like, so, tell me I'm not the only one. Yeah. So what do you think draws us in? uh, It kind of depends. When I'm thinking about post-apocalyptic readers, Mm -hmm. they want to experience a – an apocalypse that is engaging with action and characters that seem realistic. I think that's a huge part of it. Um, I also noticed that a lot of these post-apocalypse stories that are hugely popular are, have humor elements in, in them. And that's one, which is always great. It is, it is. And, And that's something that I've actually struggled with as a writer because it's hard to know when to insert humor yeah. in a book that's really bleak. And I remember the first manuscripts for my extinction cycle that I submitted to my agent, he came back with a ton of comments as he always does. And one of them was, dude, you have these characters smiling way too much. And I was thinking, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, they're still, they're still going to find moments of joy. Yeah. But then I realized like, yeah, there's people aren't going to be joking around or laughing, smiling like and, you know, even in real life, that doesn't always yeah. happen. So, I, yeah. yeah, so there are definitely characters that I think other authors have created that are just humorous in themselves. And that works really well yeah. um, for I've created some of those myself, but creating like a humorous apocalypse 
is something that I've never really been able to do, but there's definitely that side of the genre. Gotcha. There's a lot of readers that like that. I, I write books that are more bleak and, you know, honestly depressing in some ways. I, a lot more of like, more like real life. <laughs> yeah. And because I'm trying to make the most realistic po- uh, apocalypse. Indeed. And, yeah. and that's what I did with Helldivers. And, you know, the reviews are pretty good on those books. But the ones that I've seen that are negative, and not all of them are like this, but a lot of them are talking about how depressing that that is. And and, you know, it, that's what I designed it to be. But I can totally understand why people don't want to read that sort of thing, too, when life can be depressing in itself. So for me, um, when I'm writing the apocalyptic novel, the way I try to engage readers is uh, kind of a, a format that includes – a compelling world that is unique for each of my books I've tried to, or each of my series I've tried to create a unique world. So for Helldivers, I've already described that, but with Orbs, I wanted to do a unique uh, or something that's never been done for an, an alien invasion. And that's essentially what an orb is. So let they, me ask you that, Nick. Do you believe we're uh-huh. the only ones out there? <laughs> he was waiting, I want you to go yeah. on record. He man. was waiting tell, to ask tell me you what that the question. man thinks. What does Nick think about aliens? <laughs> I was actually just talking about this last night because I was trying to explain how I thought um, if there if there are aliens on Earth, they're probably an octopus because they're the, they have the most alien DNA out of any creature. Very true. Um, but I I don't I don't think those are like little green men. I'm just talking yeah. about their DNA. Yeah, I sure. do believe I absolutely believe that there's life on other planets and that life potentially has already visited us. Um, I have some kind of weird theories about all that. Well, th- this, would, <laughs> now you can dig into it a little bit. So, yeah, so tell me, know. have you ever had that one moment you say, Hey Dustin, I'm telling you, it doesn't make sense. So, which means it probably happened. Like, is there been something that made you think a little differently on things? Like let's say enlighten you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I actually had a kind of a weird moment the other night I was driving home from the coffee shop at like nine 30 and I was pretty much already having an adrenaline rush from all the coffee I'd consumed throughout the day. And I just started thinking about like life and how it starts, how, how much of a miracle it is to even get where we are to be born. I mean, you have to win the race (laughs) and very true. Uh, Yeah. You know, just how amazing it's like winning the lottery, but also having the opportunity to even have a ticket. So I started thinking about that and then I'm like, and then I just kept going on and on. And it was just one of those weird moments that I had about the universe and how thing, how life came to be, but how, but then, where did life start originally? Uh, like that's right. Pretty much, yeah. pretty much the type of questions that humans have always asked, but we're not we're not able to fathom the answers to those types of questions. We had this. We, so, we, we got into this last week, we and again, being the same age as you, Nick, um, I, I same thing. Kind of the place to say, okay, so if we go to bedrock on every story, including yeah. Adam and Eve, like, mm-hmm. well, what was the bedrock of their story? And, yeah. and well, whatever the origin is of anything, outer space, any. Um, what do we look at it from a scientific standpoint? And you can still blend faith if that's what you want to lean on in the end. Um, but you're right. It is the, you're like me. It's to take things at face value was just indoctrination. It's where you're born is what you're going to believe. And that's one of the things that I can tell you that as a reader, that you have this way of bringing me in and allowing me to make my own decisions that you don't indoctrinate. I, I look at, uh, you know, one of the characters in the extinction series, you know, obviously read and fits like, the character uh-huh. fits for me is this was a person saying, I want in the club. I'll do anything. You have Reed that loses a body part and says, I'm not quitting. 
I'm not giving up. And yet all of them believe they have a purpose. So what is your purpose? What would you say that at the end of your life or the end of your day, you were to be defined as what, and I will tell you again, what I think of you as you leave me on the, the reading side of it, what would you say your purpose is? You know, I've, I'm not really sure because I'm not sure I have just one purpose or that I was, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that I've pursued in my life so far and a lot of things that I enjoy doing. Um, if I guess if I could say there's one purpose, it might be to be a storyteller. Uh, but that could also change eventually to be a parent or something like that. I think that for, for most people, your purpose, uh, can change throughout your life and it depends on circumstances. So I, I don't want to really say that I have, that I was put here to, to write books because I mean, I, I try to also be humble about my work too, because you know, there's a, I'm, I, I network a lot. I see a lot of authors. I already kind of talked to you about how I feel about sharing like sales data and whatnot, but it's one of those things where like I write because I love doing it and I want to share stories. And when you're talking about like uh, preaching or indoctrinating readers, that's one thing that I never will do. I, I make it a point not to even put politics in my book because for me, sharing a story is supposed to be entertaining. At the same time, I'm, I'm trying to teach people stuff too, like survival tips and whatnot for the, the apocalypse. But I'm always trying to have diverse characters too. So in my books, you'll see people that have different, that come from all different types of, or walks of life that have, that are, you know, have different religions. Um, and that, that was really big for me in the extinction cycle, uh, because it's something you have to be pretty careful of in the genre I write in, um, to not try to swing things a certain way. Um, because that actually can alienate re- readers, which I'm sure yeah. you, and you probably read books like that I, I have been yeah, many times going, well, I don't believe the same as you. And well, therefore, if uh, I don't think I can continue. And I think that's the challenge all of us face. So talking about writing and talking about a book, uh, my book, uh, Life's Tough, You Can Be Tougher, is coming out on uh, June the 30th. One of the awesome. challenges that anybody faces in this space is when you are an unknown writer and you are trying to find a way to write so for your reader. Um, not the way you want, but at the same time, making sure you put in only truth. One of the things I found with you is your ability to dig into a story and not embellish it. Like you, you found a way to find facts in the, the military, in the environment. And so that really leads us into our next question. And one I'm going to throw back to, to Chrissy from Charm City Players. Um, is there such a thing as taking a story too far with its fantasy elements? Elements, sorry. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and that's something I see in, in negative reviews sometimes too, for Helldivers specifically, because some people can't suspend their disbelief for that type of situation. And I think, you know, even in the Game of Thrones episode on Sunday, Fantastic which I won't give out, yeah. show. That was insane, man. Yeah, definitely. Um, but even in a fantasy world like that, sometimes there's certain things that you can't do without the reader saying, or the, the, the audience rather, um, thinking like, this is not possible. So let, let's just take zombies, for example. Like I, the reason that I decided to add realistic science into my extinction cycle series is because I wanted to create an, an event where a human could become 
a zombie-like creature. So I explain that through what's called epigenetic changes. They basically turn on genes that have been turned off and create the perfect predator. And yeah, that for me it's, was, it's an ancient code in your system. It's been there all yeah, along. Right. Yeah. So that's why I did that because I, I wanted readers to not have to suspend disbelief. And some still probably weren't able to, but at least I presented, I think, a scientific explanation for how these very sick humans became what we called what I called variants. And I, you know, it's science fiction is definitely different than fantasy. I think you can get away with a lot more in fantasy than you can in science fiction. Um, and I learned the hard way because my first, my, yeah, my first series orbs did not have hard science fiction. In, it. in fact, it was more rate, what I'd call B rated science fiction, if that, and that really, um, caused me to realize that if you don't have, realistic science in your books and people want hard science fiction that's going to cause a major problem so you know talking about your book dustin and what you have to figure out i mean you're in a totally different space than i am correct but you have to present your story in a way that readers buy it essentially and so i guess the long that's a long answer but yes absolutely i think you can get go too far um in fantasy and science fiction. Yeah, so let me ask you in terms of your books and would you would you consider it to be PG, PG-13 and would you ever be willing to do R? I mean, I think that my books are probably already around the R rating. I've specifically told my mother not to read them. <laughs> <because> <laughs> Did she read it so anyway? It, no, she started one, but the other thing I've even been really careful. My my twin brother, he does a, a he has a business called Man Up, which is teaching at risk youth to be men, essentially. And I sounds like a great, a great organization. Yeah, I've, I've gone to mentor those kids and talk to those kids on numerous occasions, and I've handed out my books, but I'm very careful about making sure that they're at least 14 because my books do have elements in them that I don't think are appropriate for youth. So I would probably rate it at. Yeah, closer to R almost. So maybe, maybe not even appropriate for fourteen years old. My, I've kind of let my brother determine that because he knows the kids better than I do. Oh, that's that's pretty wow. interesting. Great. So that leads us to the next yeah. question. Next question for you: How do you know when you've completed a particular series of books? And that's oh, Ornigan. Yeah. Like, when do you yeah, know, no, that's that, it. I've told like, the story. Exactly. Like, I'm comfortable with it. Because I've always wondered, you know, when you're writing and I write as well, when do you feel like you've come to the closing of a book and it's time to put it down and start another one? Or either you want to stretch it out and make it more like the series that you do? I yeah, That's such a good question. And sometimes I don't know the answer to that. For me, it's kind of been on an individual basis. Gotcha. Um, and it also can kind of be, you know, there's there's other elements involved, though. For me, since this is how I put food on the table. Sometimes it's a financial decision and, um, or a publishing contract issue. So for like orbs, for example, I always wanted to write a book for and kind of end the series the way I wanted to, but that series was bought by Simon and Schuster back in 2014. Wow. So, so up until 2018, they had the rights to that and I didn't want to do a fourth book. I don't think they would have wanted to anyways. I mean, it wasn't even discussed, honestly. Yeah. So I eventually got the rights back. Um, 
in 2018 and I put out a book four and I re I self published books one through three again. Wow. And I, well so done. that, you know, that's just an example of a, a contract issue where I couldn't, I could have maybe self published book four, but I wanted to make sure I had all the books, the rights to all the books before I did that. So I could kind of control the destiny of how those were published again. Um, trackers, the tracker series, uh, was always meant to, to be a trilogy uh book three just ended up being so long that i decided to add a fourth to that and and i'm very happy with the way that ended i that's one i get questions on even daily still are there gonna be more books but i'm i'm pretty happy with the way that storyline tied up so that one is just kind of natural but yeah. for helldivers that was signed as a trilogy with blackstone and <laughs> i <clears throat> I just, you know, there's so much more story to tell in that one. And the the sales were just so fantastic, especially in the audio that. So you had to write another said, one. <laughs> yeah. They said, let's do a book four and a five. And then they said, OK, how about a book six and a seven? And and I mean, I could keep going. I absolutely love the storyline, too. And that's another thing that I think is very important. If you're continuing a storyline, you need to be absolutely in love with it. That's true. Or at least enjoy writing it. Because if you're burned out, the reader is going to be able to tell. And so that's kind of what happened in my extinction cycle. Mm -hmm. That one kept going and going. And I I love the characters. Um, but I felt like I needed to take a break for it from it. And uh I... Yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. You, you. Uh, I wanted you to keep going because actually, a uh, thought that I had when you were talking: Have you ever felt like you had to force a story out of your, out of you, in regards to uh, contract purposes? You know, like feel like um, it's another one that's expected of you, and you're like, I'm, I'm done. I want to close this one off, but you kind of feel like I have to pull it out of, you know, find a place to write it. Have you um, ever had that feeling? I'm fortunate that I've never had that. I've never felt that way. That's good to know. Um, yeah, I think that some writers do. Um, and especially with traditional publishers. But for me, I have never really experienced a story that I felt like I had to write. That's um, great, man. It, it does feel good to end the contract, though, to know that you can move on to the next thing. But and, and I'm thinking just because I have a seven book contract right now with Blackstone okay. and, and with a short story or a novella as well. And I, I'm almost at the end of that. And that's been a couple of years in the making or, you know, just the, just writing those books. And so I'm looking forward to being uh, to moving on to something else, whether it's with them or, you know, another publisher or self-publishing. So that's really the only thing I can relate to in terms of of contractual gotcha. issues. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, but in, in terms of storyline, I've never pumped anything out just to pump it out. That's I think good readers to know. Would, yeah, readers <laughs> would be able to tell. I mean. I did have I did leave book four of my Helldiver series at, with a major cliffhanger just because I felt like that was what needed to happen. That was and what ended. Say so to be continued. <laughs> Keep everybody guessing. Yeah. Yes, but it's always like a great story. Some people aren't cool with that, and I'm you know, <laughs> so I got some flack on that. But it was definitely not a money grab, and that's one thing writers face a lot too. Um, I think that when you expand a universe and you keep writing in it, there's going to be that small portion percent of readers that think that you're just doing it for the money. But, mm. and I was actually talking to a blogger about this yesterday because, and he told me his opinion on it. He said that you can totally tell as a reader and you know what, as a reader, I can 
as well. So yeah, there's I some that have become so commercialized. Uh, some of the top authors out there in, in the fiction space, where you know it's not them writing it; it's 18 people behind them. Yeah, yeah, you can definitely. feel it. Yeah. So Nick, I'm going to jump in. I have a question for you. Since I'm sure. in, I'm with Charm City Players. We're Maryland, D.C. and Northern Virginia's best family theater, and we get all kinds of messages all the times after families see our shows, how inspired they are. My question for you is what kind of messages do you get from your followers and your readers? Oh, I get a variety. Um, some are absolutely crazy. <laughs> like <laughs> Tell us about that. Sure. What would be like the craziest uh, question you got? You say, man, this is the one I framed. Well, some questions don't even make sense or some messages don't make sense. Um, and I'm not sure why, but I think social media has – for me, I'm so active on social media and I'm so accessible that I probably get more more comments and just emails and Facebook messages from readers than a lot of other authors. And I also respond to them. I know a lot of authors that don't do that. And part of the reason is what we're talking about right now, because there's there, there isn't as much distance between readers and authors as there used to be. Right. And I've kind of built my brand on being accessible and having a positive brand and saying, go ahead, please contact me. I'd love to hear your, your thoughts. So I, you know, I'm trying to think of most of the time I'm like lately, for example, just yesterday, I got a few questions about my Helldivers series and certain um, things about that world and just questions about the plot. So I get a lot of plot questions. Um and then I get a lot of questions about expanding books or reading orders since I have series um, and then events, of course. But I'm trying to think if I can share a crazy one for you guys. That is. Yeah, I, I'm maybe, waiting for it. Hopefully it didn't come from maybe me. I need to, maybe I need to think <laughs> about it. Um, uh, well, I've had I guess I'll, I'll just share some of the I get some emails and about from readers that think I'm one of those con man type art uh, writers. Where they I'm think, to they like, think you're a fraud? Yeah, they think I'm trying to pull something over on them because – and it always has to do with pricing because my books are on Amazon, of course, and Amazon, the pricing changes frequently. And for the Helldiver series especially, those books, um, they're – they're not specific. They're not exclusive to Amazon like my self-published books are. So those prices change. Like if, if a price goes down on another site, then Amazon price matches. So I've just had some crazy emails accusing me of trying to rip people off. Hmm. And it's a shame. like another thing, um, Amazon offers a discount. If you buy the Kindle version, hmm. They offered a discount on the audio version if you buy the Kindle version first on almost all books. And for whatever reason, a couple weeks ago, I, I started getting these messages about Helldivers 4 because that wasn't an option for Helldivers 4. And these people were thinking that it was my fault that I was trying to make more money. And I reached out to the publisher and they contact Audible and Audible hadn't turned it on yet. It just was a mechanism that they hadn't turned on for whatever reason. So those are the kind of the things – that I struggle with um, in terms of how to reply because I'm not trying to – like I already try to convince my publishers to lower the prices of my books. I've had battles between me and my agent and publishers to try to get my prices down to what I think is reasonable. And for me, that's like the that's $4.99 wonderful. 
the well for Kindle version, digital version, I don't really like to see my books at more than five five dollars, and that is not something that my publishers agree with. They want to sell for more, and I understand there's a lot more overhead, but for my self-published books, the highest price I've ever uh, had was four ninety nine. Most wow. of my self-published wow. books are. You're, you're a man. I call it. You're a man of the people. Yeah, mm-hmm. very noble of you. Well, I think you. I think you have to treat your readers well too, though, or you're. I mean, you're they're your audience. Gonna, they're your ambassadors. Yeah, they're your audience. Yeah, yeah. And that's. I think that's one thing I've kind of been known for is treating my readers well, not just for prices and stuff like this or engaging them, but I do a lot of. I do so many giveaways, and I pretty much give away. Um, I have patches for all my series. So for each book that comes out, I, I have a new patch made. And I'm, I've sent out – I have a spreadsheet of over 6,000 people I've sent stuff to in the past five years. That's cool, man. So I, I'm surprised I'm not on that list. i got to find a way. Who do I contact? Well, there's you, there's a comment – or um, uh, in the back of all my books, it says contact me if you'd like a patch or whatever. And I also post that stuff on Facebook. Well, I'm know, putting it on uh, record, Nick. I want a patch. <laughs> Yes, indeed. Oh, yes, indeed. <laughs> there's a patch with your name on. I'll send you guys a bunch of patches. Oh, please do. We're have those with pride. They become so popular that some of the patches are actually out of stock. I just wow. got a, a a new a new stock today, a new stockpile of Extinction Cycle patches. That must be fun. Um, because we're, it is, and that's just something that I enjoy doing. Um, it's something that a reader can hold in their hand or put on their backpack or, or stitch into their stocking cap or whatever, and – it's also good marketing, honestly, because that's people are people ask them, well, what does that represent? Um, and then they'll talk about my book series. So it's a cool thing to do, a fun thing to do. Yeah. And it also, I think, spreads the word. Yeah. So we, we had a, a guest on here recently, um, uh, Marine Recon Sergeant Rudy Reyes. And so writing the Extinction series, you cycle, you had to get to know the military, at least the characters and, and what they're capable of and what they're not. Um, what did you learn about the military through this process? Um, I learned quite a bit. And when I was working at Iowa Homeland Security and emergency management, I was pretty much working with all National Guard soldiers and also former, uh, not former, but, you know, retired Marines. And one of my best friends was a recon, uh, a retired recon Marine. So like Rudy, that's. Yeah, he he really, really helped me with the beginning drafts of the extinction cycle. Um, the quote in the book that Fitz always uses or the motto rather, that's all it takes is all you got. That came from him. And that was something they said in the Marines. Uh, so, by the way, I, I have lifted that, that from you, man. I, I'm candidly, I have used that ever since you wrote it. I have used it all around the world. Wow. A lot of people have. Yeah. I, Thanks for I letting get me. that a lot. I well, do, don't think me. That's a Marine. That's actually a motto that the Marines use. In, and it's an amazing motto. That's very motivational. I get emails from readers that's, that will, they'll sign it. All it takes is all you got. That's fantastic. That's such Again, a, I yeah, wouldn't, such cool I was never, nobody ever told me before you told me that that was the motto. And we had uh, Colonel uh, Godfather Ferrando that, that called in for Rudy's show as well. Uh, and same thing there that the mentality is the, all it will ever take is everything you're willing to give. So true. If you give everything you have, you can write. How many books have you now uh, written, Nick? Uh, published books. I think I'm at 22. Ooh, that all it I takes have, is all you got. That is yeah. amazing. I have three more in the pipeline right now. That's fantastic. There are phases of publishing. So, yeah, but I, I think that working with the soldiers and Marines helped. Um, I did a lot of research. I do research for all my books, obviously. So 
that I think it was a combination of things. Um, and I love military science fiction. Uh, the other thing that helped was my editor is a vet. And so he, he can really catch yeah, some great things insight. that, yeah, but still, I mean, I still miss things. I had a Marine email me a couple weeks ago that said he loves extinction cycle. It's mostly realistic. But... <laughs> mostly. Got you mostly there. Huh? You, you, yeah. you did okay job. So he gave yeah, you the thumbs but, up, right? <laughs> yeah. So that's another thing about, I, I, I do get a lot of, of these emails and, and comments from readers like, oh, I loved this, but here's what you miss, messed up on. And I actually appreciate those because it helps me not make the mistake of the future. I, I was um, going to ask you that. Do you embrace that? that, that uh, critique. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean that it's really saved me probably from, um, future criticism because if I fix something then, or if, if I, if I learn something, then I'm not going to make that mistake a second time. Um, it clearly so, shows you have a, an amazing discipline when, you know, as you're, as you're talking, I'll tell you something, man, I, I go back to thinking about something we wanted to ask you earlier in the show about, um, being an athlete. An Iron Man. You know, tell us a little bit about that. I know it's a little uh, returning the corner there, but you got to tell us where all of the energy comes from and the ability to stay so focused. Yeah. How do you hyper focus? Yeah. How do you do it? Uh, that's a good question, too. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll go back to I've always kind of been an athlete. I always did sports. Um, but in 2008, I had this. Um, hold on a second. Sorry. Yeah, I just had a, a weird thing happen. You guys can still hear me, though, right? Yeah, can hear you fine. Hear you fine. Okay, sorry, sorry about that. So you're good. Back in back in 2008, I had um, I got a virus in my heart called pericarditis. It's uh, it affects the uh, the sac, the pericardite of the of the heart. It's it's um, basically I just got strep throat or something like. They weren't sure what it was, but it 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 was a virus, and then it caused. Um, that's what they thought I had. It wasn't strep throat, oh my sorry. Gosh. Wow, man. but, but it got in my heart and, um, I started having really bad chest pain. Um, it got worse and worse. And then one night I woke up at like two in the morning and I'm hyperventilating. I feel like I'm having a heart attack or what I thought would be a heart attack. So my dad rushed me to the ER and they, they thought I was having a heart attack and they started asking me all these questions. Like, did you do meth or Coke or I mean, all these crazy things? I'm like, no dude, I was sleeping and I've been really sick. So they did surgery on me. Um, and they, they still didn't know what was going on. They, um, I was in the ICU for two days before Jeez. I think they, they told my parents that I had pericarditis, which is deadly at times. Oh, um, but that was when I was working for the state in, in grad school and just super busy. So I worked myself probably to sickness and then it got worse. I kept, I was going to work while I had like 103 temperature, which was my fault, but that's the, was the result. You, you were fighting through and, it. And yeah. Yeah. So basically that took me a long time to recover from my heart had major damage to it. And I think after that, I realized like, Holy crap, like I almost died and, um, I wanted to get healthy again. So I started running and doing everything I used to do to get healthy. And, and, um, when I worked for Homeland security, uh, a couple of my friends were triathletes. So I started doing triathlons and then they said, well, Hey, we're going to try to do an Ironman. And I didn't even know what an Iron Man was back then. I looked at yeah, it. Isn't that superhero? Like, <laughs> <laughs> did, yeah, did you see the Avengers yet? I, I took my I, uh, I took not, my son. <laughs> I have not seen that yet. I, I I wanted to, but it was sold out. So I 
and I don't know if the race is actually named after the superhero, but I can see why if it was. Yeah, yeah the guy go, look, but, you got to be tough. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a it's a 2.4 mile swim. It's a 112 mile bike and then a full marathon at the end of it. So I started training. It took me six months to train for I did a half Ironman in Galveston, Texas. And then I did a full Ironman in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. And that, I swear, was the reason I have the discipline I have now and the energy I have now, because it taught me how to kind of not only focus on, um, persevere. And, yeah. Through the worst pain of my life, because I also got in a super bad bike accident about a month before the full Ironman. And the doctor told me like, there's no way you're going to be able to do this. And I was so determined that, I, in my, my run time, it was actually, it didn't hurt when I biked for some reason, but when I ran, it was really bad pain. So my run time was way off of what I wanted to be, but I did finish. And I think that pushing through that was really taught me how to persevere and just focus on past the pain and just what your goals and, and accomplishing goals. That's awesome. So you gave it all you got, Uh, all it takes is all you have. So last question for you, Nick, um, who would you say, or who is the toughest person in your life? Uh, Who pushes you? It, it can be the toughest man or woman. It could be a couple people who are the toughest people in your life. Uh, I would say my grandpa, Jake was the toughest for sure. He was an attack. Yeah, Jake. Um, Angelo was his real name. Angelo Jake Angren. He's he was an Italian immigrant. He came over here, worked in the coal mines in Waukee, Iowa, so the Schuler mining camp. Um, he dropped out of eighth grade to work in the mines with his dad. I and can't then imagine. He got, yeah, he got shipped off to World in World War Two. Um, fought on Normandy Beach, Battle of the Bulge. I mean, he was just. An amazing guy. Then he came home and uh, he started working as a as a home builder for a company and eventually went off on his own, um, built a ton of houses that are that are now out in Waukee. And he had a really, really tough life and he ended up getting Alzheimer's and seeing him fighting that disease was just probably one of the most I don't even know how to describe it because he, at first he lost the ability to walk. And Man. so he, like I would go over there and he was in a wheelchair raking his leaves in his driveway because he always was working. He, he was just such a hard worker. I mean, grew up in the great depression era and you know, it just insane work ethic. Um, and all of his family was, he had two brothers and three sisters and they were all like that. Um, so just seeing him struggle and fight that disease, it wasn't even Alzheimer's that ended up he didn't he passed away from getting a super bug that antibiotics couldn't treat. And mm. so just seeing him go through all that, he lasted you know, almost ten years, I think it was, with that disease before he finally succumbed to it. So the, I would say by far my grandpa was the strongest, toughest guy I've ever met. And I often think about what he would think of me as as a man now. Um, because he passed away when I was 21. So I wasn't, you know, even I hadn't really experienced life like I have, I hadn't accomplished things and I was still in school basically. So I think about him often and what he would, what he would think. Um, well, and I, whether it sounds like he has left quite the, the legacy and, and impression, you know, typically we always say that life's tough, but so-and-so is tougher in this case, 
Life's tough, but Nicholas's grandpa Jake is tougher. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's you, you have given us um, you've given us a lot to take in uh, the audience, and then also for me personally, as being somebody that is. Well, many people claim to be your biggest fan. I go, I'm kind of your biggest fan. Um, <laughs> well, that's cool. I've Thank looked you. up I mean, to you for a very long time, and it's it's been an honor to have you on the show. And hopefully, uh, you, you'll come back for for the next one you and I have together here soon. Yes, Absolutely, indeed. it's been an honor being on the show, and and I've I've had a really good time, honestly, like being able to talk about all these different things and talk about writing and. Um, it's just, as you guys can probably tell, I love what I do. Yes, you do, man. Hopefully, and and you're good at it. You're, you yeah, haven't thanks. become a jerk yet. If you ever become a jerk, <laughs> Nick, can I say, hey, jerk. Uh, we have to Nick, play this one back. I, for you. Hey, Nick, jerk. I mean, jerk. I need to, <laughs> need to sit you aside and say the last book, you kind of, you didn't do it. We have to play you this know, interview back for you. That's funny. I, can I, I just like to share one more thing. Uh, Go for it. I, I heard from a reader the other day. I was sending him out some signed copies and he goes, dude, Nick, I just want to tell you that. It's so crazy because he's known me from the beginning. Like he was one of my first readers and he's like, you have not changed a bit. You're still the same person. And I really, I really appreciated hearing that because I have a lot of author friends or just friends that change. This career has changed them. Some, some, in a a positive way, but other, you know, I've seen a lot of authors too that have literally stopped writing and moved on to other things, not because they couldn't make it, but just because this is, is a tough career. Hmm. Um, just like any entrepreneur, I mean, like I said, from the beginning, you have to treat as a business, but I think that you have to be good to whoever and and whatever you do in life, you have to be good to people. So true. Otherwise you're just not going to succeed. Well well said, Nick. Well, look, Again, That's thank you point. for, for uh, coming on and, and thank you for talking to the Life's Tough community. Absolutely. Thanks we, for appreci- having. we appreciate it, man. Yeah, man, this is great. Well, yeah. um, you can stay on the line or uh, you can drop off. We're going to be kind of digging into talking about you and saying, hey, he was a nice guy, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, that that guy was pretty amazing. cool. <laughs> this was a great interview, man. <laughs> uh, okay, thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. So I'll probably let you do your own thing and I'll listen to it when it comes out. Sounds you got good. It, appreciate good. it, man. All right. Have see a great okay. rest Bye. of your week. All right. Yeah, take care. Thanks, guys. Bye. Man, that was fun. That was awesome. Well, what a what a cool guy. He was, yes, indeed. All right, you can definitely tell he's passionate about what he he does. He loves what he does. Yes, and that's that's it, man. That's everything. You know, you need in life when you find, as he said, either purpose or purpose is purpose is is that there may be one thing you do really well and you do something else really well, or at least comes easy. So with that, uh, we've been talking with Nicholas Sansbury Smith, a prolific and popular writer of post-apocalyptic or science fiction. Nick's books have always held a fascination for me, as you've just heard. A disaster or calamity of epic proportions would overwhelm the world, and the survivors who remain will have to find a way to exist in their new hostile environments. How many of us have faced trials? How many of us have been in a place in our life where there was a catastrophe? And yet it is easy to say what you will do, but what happens when you're in it? Do you change who you are? Do you become the person you've always been? This type of sci-fi resonates with me deeply on a few levels. First, while growing up in an evangelical Christian household, my sister Tennille and I often watch videos about the rapture with my mother and, and pastor stepfather. Well, the rapture refers to a time when the true believers in Jesus Christ will be summoned upward, snatched away, to meet Christ somewhere along the path to heaven. A giant horn will sound, signaling the moment when God begins this process. The people who would ascend would suddenly disappear. 
I know this because the videos about the rapture that our family watched would show a flash of light, and then only clothes would remain where people had been moments before. It sounds a lot like science fiction. Many of the stories that Nick says or Nick tells will others claim to be science fiction. It was as if, however, in this story in the rapture, that the people were literally sucked out of their clothes. Sometimes the videos would show a van careening through a neighborhood. People in the van would jump out and ask bystanders along the street if they believed in Jesus Christ. Those that said they did believe would be immediately murdered right on the spot so that they could enter heaven. We talked a little bit earlier about indoctrination, about the things we tell children. These are the stories that people around the world are telling children. Yet when people hear about a post-apocalyptic science fiction author, they say that that stuff's crazy. That's the things of the mind. That's the things of, well, fiction. And then for those who did not believe, well, the videos didn't actually show the murders taking place, but they did show the bodies dropping. And the people who followed false gods, they had to accept the mark of the beast, 666, either on their foreheads or their right wrist. These unfortunates were the ones who were, were left behind. You certainly don't want to be left behind, my family would say, because there would be hell on earth. It's there written in the book of Revelation. Everyone will have to decide to either die for the sake of Jesus or accept the mark of the beast and face inevitable doom and what would be a world of fire, destruction, and devastation. Apocalyptic. This would be the start of the end times. For certain groups of Christians, like my family, it was essential to be prepared for the rapture. The only way, of course, was to commit to Christ. Dustin, you need to tell people that they've got to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, or they will be left behind, she'd say. He's only taking those who believe in him. When we hear these words, and people like me that read these books by Nicholas Sansbury Smith and other authors like it, the thought of being left behind, being prepared, well, as you hear these stories around the world of this rapture, will the people have to make plans in their head because there are those who believe they will be left behind. And for those of us that believe we go up, well, maybe we don't. And well, there's always the possibility. Well, Tennille and I, we were filled with fear after watching a series of these videos at our home and hearing our family's pronouncements. We were facing the prospect of being left behind again, as you heard in earlier stories. And that was a whole other level, which Tennille and I took to heart. We had actual experience with being left behind. Our mother had left us behind when she headed to the East Coast to start her new life. Robbie, our father, left us on a more intermittent basis when he drove off from our shack in Rainbow, California. We didn't know if he'd return in an hour, several hours, or even the next day. We had been left throughout our early childhood. The prospect of it happening again was real, too real. And our mother's focus on the rapture underscored the possibility. When we hear a story like that, and I look back to the books that I read and the things that fascinate me, the thought of being left behind will just brings back childhood memories. What attracts us to science fiction? What attracts you to the books that you read? What happened along your path and your journey that made you pick up that novel? That when you were flipping through Amazon, that story, that one story about a ship, two ships, 250 years in the future, or high up, high up far enough that nothing could hurt them. Well, what happens in life is that you're never untouchable. You go to space, and well, there's also problems there. These dilemmas that we face, even we think we've gotten out of the problem, a new one exists. 
It's been a fantastic day. For me to talk to Nicholas has been, for me, a bit of a dream. Getting to be able to dive into the world of science fiction with him, for me, is something that I've looked forward to for years. To be able to ask somebody, I'm not the only one. You wrote this for me, why? Many of the books you read in your own library, someone wrote it for you, that they were thinking of you. Ask yourself, am I really alone? Is there somebody else out there that thinks like me, that finds the same things that I find fascinating? Many of us are lonely. Well, when it comes to books and when it comes to clubs like it, join a club. Get together with people in your circle. Find people that are fascinated with the things that you're fascinated about. Because I can promise you that while post-apocalyptic might not be for you, it is for some people like me. Good point. So that wraps up our show for this evening. And I'd like to thank again our special guest, Nicholas Sansbury-Smith, for sharing his insight into this ever-expanding collection of published works and for talking about the approach to writing those stories. Also, thank you, Oren, for being a part of this show. Anytime, Dustin. Thank you. And thank you, our amazing audience, for making the Life's Tough podcast one of the most relevant and fast-growing shows around. I'd also like to thank my dear friend, Christina Knapp. She's amazing. <laughs> Pleasure. Thank you. Charm City. Thank you. You guys, you inspire a tremendous amount of people. Very you true. bring a lot of joy into my kids' lives. Thank Very true. You. And a special thanks to my dear friend, Gerald Levin, Life's Tough, Cheap Writer, and my Sherpa. Also like to thank an audience today, Marcus, and our producer, John Miller. The stories we all hear are as varied as the people who tell them. And each time I hear someone's personal account, I do not frame it as something that was more horrible than my own story or something that was not as bad as what I went through. It's impossible to discount the impact of any one singular experience. To the person who lived it, that story is just as devastating as any other. I ask you, use your story. There's power in it. Everyone has a story. Your story may be just what it takes to keep somebody from going over that edge. That maybe that day for you to go out on a run was to stop somebody from doing something wrong. Maybe your purpose is to see the signs. Maybe there was a reason that the thought came into your head. I need to go out today. I need to go to the store. I need to go call a friend. I need to text somebody. Because what if this world that Nicholas says is fiction, what if parts of it can become reality? What if we are all connected? What if there's an energy around us? And what if these thoughts and these moments that hit you were there for you to find your purpose? Remember, please subscribe to our show. Visit lifestough.com, L-I-F-E-S, tough, T-O-U-G-H.com. And be sure to join us every week, same place, for a stimulating hour of heartfelt discussion. Remember, everyone has a story. Life's tough. You can be tougher. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. Next week, we'll broadcast a lively conversation with Dr. Craig, a police forensic psychologist. Tune in and we'll find out together what's involved with a job like that. Remember again, also, May is National Foster Care Month. So for Oren Stewart and the entire Life's Tough team, including Miss Christina Knapp, <laughs> this is Dustin Planholt. Oren Stewart. Christina Knapp. Remember, life's tough, but <laughs> Nicholas's grandfather is much tougher. Thanks again, everybody. Join us next week, same time. <laughs>